0: masterful uh, eyewitness account of Jesus's life and ministry. It's been a wonderful journey. Uh, it's, it's one that's lasted us through the seasons of Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and now Easter. But today we conclude our study, no pump fakes, we actually are concluding our study this morning um, by looking together at the passage of scripture that Aubrey just read for us. John chapter 17, what's often been called Jesus's high priestly prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus prayed for us in the final hours of his life. Now, imagine with me for a moment that you're about to go on a trip. It sounds nice, right? Um, It's a long trip, and uh, you don't know when you'll be back. It could be a very, very long time. How do you leave? Do you rush out? Well, no. Uh, If you're anything like me, you'll probably spend those last few hours setting everything in order for when you return. My mom always said that she hates coming home to a dirty house. And I think that most of us probably feel something like that. So we uh, take the trash out, we make our bed, we throw out the milk in the refrigerator, if we remember. One of the most important things, though, that we do is we say goodbye to our loved ones. And with those goodbyes often come instructions, instructions about what we would like for them to do until we return. In our passage for this morning, Jesus is giving us his final instructions. Yes, he's certainly praying to the Father. We don't want to overlook that at all. What we have before us this morning is actually one of the most beautiful and moving prayers in all of the Bible. But we also shouldn't overlook the fact that Jesus is praying aloud in the presence of his disciples. We might even say that he is stealing a page from the preacher's playbook, right? The sermon's over and he started the closing prayer. But you get the idea that he's still preaching to you. And what's Jesus teaching us about? He's teaching us about true discipleship about how to follow Him as our Lord and our King, even when He's physically absent from us. And that's what I'd like to draw our attention to this morning. I want us to see from this passage four marks of true discipleship that Jesus is wanting us to pursue. Four marks of true discipleship. We're going to look at true glory, true holiness, true unity, and true love. All right? So let's look at each one of those. First, true glory. Uh, Look with me at verse 1 of our passage, where Jesus prays, Father, it's time. The hour has come. Glorify your Son. This seems to many of us Uh, to be a bold statement, to say the least. It might even strike us as egotistical. Jesus is asking for glory. Uh, He's asking to be honored and recognized as supremely important. Now, it's one kind of audacity for an employee to ask a boss for a raise or even to demand it. But it's another kind of audacity entirely For someone to ask, to tell God, to glorify them. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. Without even bothering to say, please. Who does Jesus think he is? And that's actually the question that John wants us to ask, right? And he's been answering it for us ever since the opening sentence of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, it's interesting. Some people today are denying that Jesus ever claimed to be God. But right here before us, in this very prayer, we see this claim coming from Jesus' own lips. Look with me at verse 5. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John is teaching us something very unique, utterly unique to Christianity. He's teaching us that God is not a monad seeking glory for itself. No, John is teaching us that God is a trinity, that he is one being, but that he exists eternally in three persons who know and love each other. I'll say it again, that God exists as trinity, as one being who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who know and love each other. Now, if that sounds a bit mysterious to you, then you're in good shape. Um, We should expect, I think, God to be somewhat incomprehensible to us. That's what makes him God. And that mystery is part of what draws us into his presence to worship him, even this morning. But it's this concept of the Trinity that puts Jesus' request in a whole new light. You see, if both the Father and the Son are not in competition with one another, but share their glory as one being, then Jesus' request is not selfish or egotistical at all. In fact, it's actually humble and a radical act of self-giving. Jesus is asking for glory, but how does he get it? He gets it by humbling himself for service, by being exalted by someone else, and by using that honor to give life to others. This is at the heart of Jesus' request here. It's a desire for the glory of God and the good of others. Glorify your Son, Jesus says, that the Son may glorify you. That's the kind of glory... Christianity is all about. It's the glory that exists behind the heart of the universe. It's a humble glory. It's the glory you and I were created to pursue. But we want the sham. And it's often through our God-given vocations, good things, that we're tempted to chase after it. Vainglory, selfish ambition, Self-exaltation, these things pervade the working environment, uh, perhaps more than any other traits. We want the glory that gets the press, that gets the promotion, that gets the girl, so we live in competition with one another, and we're always trying to outdo and, 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 un- and outflank each other. But this is exhausting, It's totally exhausting. And it normally comes with a very painful sting in the end. Because when we throw ourselves into self glory, we end up throwing everyone else out. Whether they're our friends, our co workers, or even our family members. Some of the most successful people in our world today end up being the most depressed, not because they're successful but because they've burned every bridge possible to get to the top so that when they finally made it, they're exhausted and they don't have anybody to share the view with. That's why Jesus, who cares for us, who loves us, calls us to pursue true glory. It's the kind of glory that gets the most honor by giving the most honor to others. Yes, it might be a humble glory, but it's not a lonely glory. It's the glory of God. And when we share in it, we don't have to be alone. We're always in community with God. That's the mark, the first mark of true discipleship that we see here true glory. There's a second mark that I want us to see true holiness maybe you've heard of the Christian saying, in the world, but not of it. Uh, It's essentially a paraphrase of verses 14 through 19 of this prayer, where Jesus gives his followers this double mission of being sent into the world while remaining distinct, different from it. So, hence, in the world, but not of it. Now, to some of us, this might seem like it. Like the impossible ninja test. Like Jesus is asking us to run through a blizzard without getting hit by a single flake of snow. And if that were the case, only Elias Wickline could be a Christian. (laughs) Right? The rest of us would be totally doomed. But that's not to make light of the tension in which Jesus is calling us to live. And holiness really is attention. We know we won't be holy if we live like the world and abandon Jesus's teachings. We know that. But we need to remember that we also won't be holy if we live by Jesus's teachings and abandon the world. This often takes a little more time to sink in, doesn't it? Uh, G.K. Chesterton, he was this defender of the Christian faith in the early 20th century, he, he wrote once about the difference between Christian holiness and Buddhist holiness. The difference can be seen in their religious art. Uh, go to a Buddhist temple and the images of their saints will almost always have their eyes shut. But go to a gothic medieval cathedral And the saint's eyes are wide open. The Buddhist, he says, is looking with a peculiar intentness inwards. The Christian is staring with a frantic intentness outwards. So to me, this says that sometime between the medieval church and our day, holiness became less and less About engagement with the world. And more and more about detachment from it. Uh, More about not staying out past curfew. Less about shining into the darkness. But Jesus calls us to live in deep tension. This is holiness. And yes, it's far more difficult. Yes, students. This will inevitably lead you. To being mocked at the lunch table for your views. Yes, professors. This will inevitably lead you to saying something. That your institution deems to be politically incorrect. Yes, lawyers. This will inevitably lead you to stand up for a justice. That looks completely backwards to the world. And that no one understands. But that's true holiness. It's not a retreat from the world. It's a way of looking at and living in the world as citizens of a different kingdom. We used to think that when we turned our eyes upon Jesus, that the things of this world would grow, would grow strangely dim. But actually, it works just the opposite, doesn't it? When we turn our eyes upon Jesus... Every single facet of this world overflows with significance. Movies become more than just entertainment. They become a vehicle of art and a battleground of ideas. The poor become more than a problem to solve. They become people with names and stories and feelings and relationships. When we look at Jesus, we see... That his eyes are wide open and he's looking at the world and longing for it. Longing for the world that he's made. He wants to make it new. And he's calling us to be part of it. That's what true holiness is about. Well, now we come to our third mark of true discipleship. First, true glory. Second, true holiness. And third, true unity. Uh, In verse 20, Jesus explicitly turns his attention to future believers. If you'll look with me, I do not ask for these only, that is for the original disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying for us. This is an amazing thought, that on the eve of his death, He's thinking about you and me. He's thinking about Casey and Brenda and Josh and Spencer. He's thinking about our church and about Harrisonburg Baptist and about Most Blessed Sacrament and about Covenant Presbyterian. He's thinking about Bishop Ondudu and Jalila and the people whom they minister to. He's thinking about every single man, woman, and child that's meeting for worship on this very day all across the world. And what's his overarching prayer for us, for these people? Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for our unity together. But he's not just praying for any kind of unity. He's praying for true unity. A unity, a, a unity that not merely reflects, but participates in the unity of God. Now, we live in an age of the divided church. It's a very sad time in many ways. But just because that's when we live doesn't mean that unity is optional. Actually, it ratchets up the imperative. When we look around us and see our Lord's church divided into hundreds and possibly even thousands of denominations, We need to feel feel the spur and leap to our feet to do everything we can to play our part in bringing it back together. But how can we do this? How can we move forward as a church in being the answer to Jesus' prayer that doesn't seem to be answered yet, does it? Well, that's the massive question of our day. But I think we can begin by taking three steps. First, we need to continue to deepen our unity in this church, right? Around the family dinner table. There must be unity. One of the things I love about incarnate, uh, incarnation is that so many of us come from different backgrounds, different traditions within Christianity. Baptist, seems like all of our clergy come from Baptist situations these days. Uh, Presbyterian, Mennonite, Catholic, <laughs> Methodist. God is doing a great work here. I really, I really haven't seen anything like it. It's so fun to be a part of this. There's a breadth and richness to our community. But we need to realize that there's also a tenderness to it. Um, The the reality is that some of us have come to this church. God has brought us to this church in order to heal. And that underneath the surface of our conversations with, with each other, sometimes is a deep hurt, a deep pain. Let's ask God to bind us together like soldiers in the trenches. Let's open up our hearts to each other and watch what God does. Stone by stone, uh, the walls of our vulnerable hearts tumbling down, becoming more and more one with each other. Uh, The second thing, we need to pray for the other churches in our city we have the opportunity to do this every week, don't we? During the prayers of the people. And I want to ask you to continue and even intensify your prayers for the churches and pastors in this city. Pray for all the churches who are meeting this morning to worship Jesus. Pray that they'll be strengthened and encouraged, that they'll experience more fully the love of God for them and for the world around them and would be sent out And as we do that, as we pray for these churches, our unity, it'll be deepened with them. And Jesus's prayer for us will come one step closer to being fully realized. So that's the second thing. The third thing we can do is to look for opportunities to serve with Christians from other traditions. During the week, God's kingdom is far wider than any denomination who are the Christians, do you know them, that are living on your street or working in your office? Could it be that God wants you to meet them and partner with them, to spend time with them, and to look at our community together with them and serve with them? Let's commit to doing this, and then let's see how God will bring our churches more and more together from the ground level up. Uh, unity is absolutely vital for our witness. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's only when we come together visibly and vulnerably, not merely as an outward thing, but really as being bound up together at heart, that God's love can be displayed more clearly to the world. It's only when we're really and truly one that the onlooking world will see and know that this kind of human community, um, united across all traditional barriers of race and custom and gender and class, only this kind of community can be explained by an, by an intervention of the Creator God. And it's the unity that we'll achieve by God's grace because the son prayed for it. And the father loves the son and is giving all things into his hands and wants to answer his request so we can be confident and encouraged while we work for unity. Uh, there's one more mark that I'd like for us to see in this passage. And perhaps this is the one that contains all of them. And that's true love. True love. Uh, In verse 24, Jesus expresses his deep desire to be with us. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. And then in verse 26, he states his commitment to us. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known to them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So here we see Jesus' great love for us. Even on the eve of his death, his crucifixion, at the eve of his, the greatest trial of his life, he is committed to loving us to completion. He wants us to be with him so that we can see his glory, so that we can know and experience the fact that the Father has exalted him as the sovereign of the world, as the loving Lord of all. Now, many Christians today are tempted to draw back from this reality. They think it sounds arrogant or like they're giving themselves a special status right? By claiming this about Jesus. But this is to misunderstand the whole message of the gospel. When Jesus is exalted, it's all for love. This isn't the sort of sovereignty that enables people to think of themselves as being better than others. No, this is the sort of sovereignty that commits them, just like it committed Jesus, to loving service And that's what love, true love, is all about. Regardless of what our culture tells us, love is not primarily a feeling. It's a commitment to action regardless of how you feel at the present time. This is the kind of love that Jesus wants us to pursue in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, in our small groups. It's nothing less than the love of God. It's the love that assures us. It's the love that assures another person of your loyalty to them, no matter what happens. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And now he says to us, to each one of us in this prayer, go and do likewise. So this is how Jesus prays for us in his final hours. And it's a fitting conclusion to our study of John's gospel, because the very thing Jesus prays for us, that we would share in the life of God, is the very thing that He came to do. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. It's the glory that draws us in to the love of the Father, isn't it? And it's also the glory that sends us out into the world as Jesus' true disciples who love the world so much and who want to see every square inch of it perfectly healed when our Lord Jesus returns. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.